Hey everyone, Greg Meskel here. Thanks for joining us on another episode of What's Good. Today I'm joined by former college basketball player, coach, and now analyst Tim Scarborough. Tim, thanks for spending some time with us. No problem, Greg. Thanks for having me, man. I'm glad we're finally able to connect. Yeah, same here. Same here, Tim. I have to say, you know, there's a lot of serious things going on, but a little escapism here. You were part of the broadcast crew for TBT as we're talking uh, now ahead of time. The championship is tonight, but I'm jealous. What was it like to be back calling live basketball? Oh, it was, first of all, it was surreal. Um, Second of all, it was nerve-wracking because not only were we calling live games, although we weren't in the building, um, our audience was as big as anything I had ever been in front of Um, because it was on ESPN. I've been on ESPN before, but now that there are no team sports going on, you know, this was kind of it. And also, the fact that we were also going to broadcast in 197 countries. So that whole, that giant audience thing, I had to kind of put that out of my mind and say, listen, I got to focus. I do this all the time. I've been doing it for 20 years. I'm a pro. Let me just do this. But yeah, it was very surreal. But um, I guess the most important feeling was just saying, wow, we finally get to see basketball. I know you're a basketball junkie. I'm a basketball junkie. And TBT is great basketball. So I'm really glad that people are being exposed to it that probably would not have it being in the summertime. So, you know, with nothing else to look at in terms of sporting events, uh, at least team sports, you know, TBT was right on time. Yeah, there was such excitement for any sort of live sports, and especially if you're a basketball fan. I think the last game was around March 12th. It's been a long layoff outside of the occasional televised horse competitions that went out there. But this was this was the real deal. Uh, you mentioned that larger audience. That had to be a cool experience. Did you find yourself hearing from lots of people in your in your basketball world that were able to watch you and Matt do their thing? Yeah, I still do. And, and it's, it's very surreal, you know. So I, I'll, I'll tell you this. Today I was texting with Ian Eagle, Seth Green, no, not Seth, um, Fran Fraschilla, and Bob Rathbun, all today. You know, I mean, you know, three years ago, I didn't even know any of those guys personally, you know. So um, and it's just good to be kind of a, one of the fellows that's invited into the party now, you know, kind of uh, accepted into the group, into the industry. You know? And, uh, you know, it's just fun. All those guys, I like, their, I like their work, first of all, and I like them as human beings. So it's really fun. You talked about the basketball being high quality, and I think this is – probably the best year for people to get a real taste of what TBT is all about. Not that they didn't watch in the past, right? But now it's a focal point during these couple of weeks. You've played at high levels. You've called high level basketball. How do you describe the quality of play for folks that maybe haven't gotten involved yet with TBT? Well, first I'll tell you who's playing in TBT and and then we can kind of make that value judgment. Um, You have guys who are at the end of their careers like Joe Johnson and Jaron Jack. Um, and then you have guys who are playing overseas and making a lot of money, six, seven-figure guys, you know, like big-time guys playing in the EuroLeague or playing in South America that are making good money. And then you have recent college grads. The Dayton team had um, Ryan Mikesell and, um, you know, guys that played on that Dayton team that just won 30-plus games It was probably going to go to the Final Four. So um, you have a really good mix of – recent college guys, borderline NBA guys, and guys who have some NBA experience, a lot of G League guys. Um, and then, you know, so, so when you think about that, you're going to have guys that understand how to play basketball. So the quality of basketball is actually really good. I'd say it's a, a rung below NBA. I think it's a little bit better than the NCAA because 
the same guys that you're seeing in the NCAA are now four or five years older, six years older, seven years older, and have that much more experience. I know as a player myself, when I was 23, I was really good. When I was 26, I was almost unstoppable at times. You know, I'd go to playgrounds, just dominate or play, you know, semi-pro ball in the D.C. area and average 28 points a game playing against college guys, right? So it was just a different uh, mindset when you're in that, you know, that prime of your career. And the second thing about it, Greg, is it's kind of an audition, particularly this year because of the big audience, you know, and the international audience. You got guys that are going to get major deals off of their performances um, in the last eight to ten days. And you're exactly right. You look on the TBT website and it tells the story of guys that started there and then went and won NBA championships, had great opportunities in the NBA, went to go play overseas. And as you yep. alluded to, that uh, professional basketball set up abroad, whether it's Europe, Asia, uh, nothing to sneeze at. That's high quality basketball guys that, to your point, are making a very comfortable living. Guys that in some cases, right, stay there as opposed to trying to scratch out a G League spot because they're doing so well playing abroad. And this is a great chance for them to get some high level competition. I also love the college atmosphere of it. Former teammates getting together. Maybe they played at the same time or they're a few years apart. How do you describe that, that camaraderie guys coming back together that know each other so well and really yeah. like being around each other? Well, yeah. And there's really two types of TBT teams, Greg. You, you have your alumni teams, um, power of the Pauls, a Clemson team, Kentucky's had a team, of course, Bayheim's Army out of Syracuse. Um, the Illini have a team this year, House of Pain, uh, Carmen's Crew from Ohio State. And some of those are your better teams in terms of being able to put a, put a quality team in TBT. And that's really harder than you think. Because you think about that Kentucky team, all their guys that graduate are in the NBA. So, you, you know, their talent pool is great, but their TBT talent pool maybe is not, you know, it's a rung or two below that. So, you know, they, they actually got knocked off by a team called D2 last year, Division two, uh, literally guys who played Division II basketball. And uh, they beat that Kentucky team by 15 points in Lexington, Kentucky, no less. So, um, yeah, the alumni teams are, are one. And then you have guys who are a collection of guys who play with each other in Europe or South America or Saudi Arabia or Egypt and some of those overseas teams, overseas elite being the best of those teams. Overseas Elite has uh, won four of the first six TBT championships and won over $7 million. Um, and the core of those guys are, have been together. Their roster is a little different now. We, we, we mentioned Joe Johnson. They picked him up. They lost Jerry Pargo. Uh, Eric McCullum is a huge TBT guy. With the last couple of years for them, he hasn't been able to play. He's C.J. McCullum's uh, older brother from um, the Portland Trailblazers. So, the, the, the two types of teams, the question is, do you want to play with your buddies from college or do you want to play with these guys who are now pros that you can depend on? And it just depends on the school. Some schools have been able to put together some pretty decent um, alumni teams. But again, it's a lot easier said than done. Depends on the timing. Who's playing overseas? Can they get back over here in time? Um, you know, it's one thing to put your roster down on paper. It's a whole other thing to get those exact guys to the gym. So the GM job is probably the hardest job in TBT. And, and as you mentioned, it's different than just the casual summer league. I grew up with the Jersey Shore basketball league down, down in Belmar, New Jersey, and there wasn't a million dollars on the line for that, even no, though you no. got you got some big time <laughs> guys to show up. The other great thing about TBT, the ending 
Uh, and so NBA fans saw this in the All-Star game for the first time this year. I thought it made that fourth quarter the best fourth quarter I've ever seen in an NBA All-Star game, this Elam ending where it's a point to get to as opposed to a clock ending. What do you enjoy about that from, from a broadcaster point of view and also from someone who played basketball? Oh, as a, as a basketball purist, let me just say, I called the very first Elam ending games in Philadelphia, where I'm from. I don't live there anymore. But it was a jamboree. So it was a play-in tournament to get into the TBT. 16 teams. They played the top four teams that won that weekend, get their advance to, to fill out the complete, complete the 64-team bracket. So they introduced it during that jamboree. And they kind of sprinkled on those teams at the last minute. Because when I would talk to the coaches or GMs to find out about their team, I would always ask them, what do you think about the Elam ending? they go, what? I said, yeah, the, the game's going to end differently. They're going to turn off the clock, and they're going to put a target score up based on who has the lead, and they're going to add, at the time, seven points. And you got to – there's a pickup game. The first team to, to that score wins the game. And they would go, uh, yeah, okay, maybe I need to develop a strategy around that. Okay, so the following year, and ever since, every subsequent year, they've decided that the Elam ending was going to be what TBT is all about. And TBT has been innovative from day one, you know. Right down to the bracket celebration that you now see in the NCAA. You see teams moving their their bracket, their team over to the next round. Um, TBT was doing that since day one. And they stole the giant bracket from the Karate Kid, and they made it look replicated. <laughs> it looks exactly like the Karate Kid movie, if you have seen that. And uh, so that celebration is something they do, and the Elam ending is something that sets um, TBT apart. But I love the Elam ending. Nick Elam is the guy who developed it. He's a guy – out of Ohio, works at Dayton. Uh, he's a member of Mensa, and he's a really, really smart guy. And he developed it, Greg, because he was tired of seeing games devolve at the end. We all are in basketball. At the end of the game, if there's a team with a more than five or six-point lead, what happens? The team trailing starts fouling. The team leading starts stalling, and they stop running their offense. They try to get a, a shot late in the shot clock. They'll either get fouled or they'll take a bad shot. And then the other team is desperate because they're running down quickly trying to score. Then they score and they call timeout and the game gets really disjointed, right? So Nick did a whole bunch of research, a, a ton, 10 years worth, in fact. Um, and he discovered that even with fouling, and I don't have the exact numbers, but it's well over 90% of the time, the team trailing by five or more with two minutes to go still loses the game. And in the pros, it's even worse. It's almost 97% of the teams who are leading with five minutes to go. Um, maybe the pros is more like three minutes or two minutes. But the point is, most of the time, nine out of ten, you're going to lose the game fouling anyway. So fouling doesn't even work, and it just mars up the game. So why not do the Elam ending scenario? And, and you're right. I mean, that, that, uh, that All-Star game was special. You know, Kyle Lowry was out there taking charges in the, in the Elam <laughs> ending scenario. You know, and, and, and the thing, the most important thing I think about Elam ending is every game ends on a made bucket. I mean, how cool is that? A walk-off three, a walk-off dunk. We've seen them all. Walk-off well, three I, throws. I was just thinking about uh, the opening weekend, and, and, and you were there watching these games and calling some of them as well. But you look back on the TBT Twitter account, you can see one of the highlights was a breakaway dunk to win it, right? To, yeah, uh, C.J. Harris. Target score. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, now, the other uh, thing uh, that I think a lot of people are curious about, being one of the first live sports back, and, and we're now in the midst of NBA waiting to get started, uh, NWSL, women's soccer has already gotten underway, MLB getting started, is the health concerns around COVID-19. I know that you were calling it remotely, but you had a reporter, Jen Hale, there on location. 
what what were some of the safety precautions put in place? I know one team had to be taken out early on, right, due to a positive test. How do they ensure that that safety? It's it, it's really on everyone's mind, of course. It really is. And there's actually there was two different protocols. There was a protocol at the site in Columbus, and there was a protocol in Indianapolis where we were calling the games remotely. So I'll give you the protocol for the teams first. Um, it's very extensive. They had the test before they got to Columbus. And if they had a negative test, that individual would, would have been kicked out. But that team was allowed to still come, assuming the ones that uh, came tested negative when they got there. Okay. So by the time they get there, they will have already passed one test. Then they go straight to their room. They go through the metal detector. They get their temperature checked. They go straight to their room. They're not allowed out of their room for 24 hours. They get food brought to them by a person with gloves and a mask and everything. Um, and then they take another test. And they have to pass five tests before they get to the basketball court. And they have to be in quarantine for five days before they get to the court. Okay, So they are super, super careful to make sure that by the time you reach the court, you are as close as you can get to 100% that you probably don't have the virus. Okay, And so you do that with the referees. You do that with the staff. Jen Hale had to do it, our sideline reporter. Um, everybody had to do this same rigid thing. Now, the teams, you mentioned um, one team. It was actually by the time we got to Saturday, it was four teams that had been eliminated because of one positive test for each of the, for, from an individual on the team. And the reason is if you test positive while you're in the bubble because you were allowed to practice with your team after that first day, eat meals with that team. So the assumption is, Greg, if you have it, you're with your team, you've exposed everybody. So we can't take a chance to let your team into the gymnasium because mm -hmm. now you could be spreading and we would never finish. Okay, it's unfortunate. Everline Drive was probably the biggest team. They had a chance to win it all. They went to the final game three years ago and had a really good team assembled and they never got to play a game. And it didn't happen until the night before their game where they got suspended. They made through most of the gates, but they had one person test positive uh, the night before the game. So they had to forfeit. And Brotherly Love, a team out of Philadelphia, got to move forward. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but John Mugar and Dan Friel, the guys who have uh, created TBT, give them a whole lot of credit. And they had a lot of temerity to try to take this huge undertaking and, and to be able to pull that off. And those guys, and, be, and to do it safely, uh, you know, hats off to both those guys and really the whole TBT staff. Yeah, that's tremendous to be able to uh, have all those things in place because I'm sure a lot of people are saying this is, to your point, quite an effort to try and make this tournament happen. Uh, but you yep. have to have all these protocols in place to make sure people are feeling right. uh, healthy and well. And, and so it's worked uh, effectively right up up into this point. They've, they've had their protocols in place. As you said, someone tests negative. They swap them out. A new team comes in. Um, and and they, here's the crazy thing, Greg. Uh, Jen Hale, we didn't have a backup for her. So she had to test negative. or She was our eyes and ears in the gym, right, in the arena. And uh, so we had a whole different protocol in, in Indianapolis. We had um, – I never saw our producers, directors, or any guys like that. They were on a separate floor in the building. They had a separate entrance. I don't even know where their entrance was. Uh, the talent had to go through the – we called it the gold area. We walked through one at a time. We had to uh, set our bags down and uh, do the, uh, the temperature check. And if you were over 98, or I'm sorry, 99.5, you couldn't do the game that day. So, but we had backups for each other. You know, Fran Fraschilla was there, um, Dan Dockett, Seth Greenberg, and myself 
were the four analysts. And then Chris Vosters, Bob Rathbun, a longtime play-by-play guy for the Atlanta Hawks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, Matt Martucci, my, my, your good friend, actually, mm-hmm. and my partner. And so, um, so we, we had backup, a backup plan if one of us went out. But fortunately, we all were able to get through the gates. And, and, uh, and then once we got in, uh, Matt, my partner, sat on the other side of the room. I couldn't go in his area. He couldn't come in mine. We had to sanitize our area before and after we, we um, got on the air. Um, we had our own headset. They, they pulled headsets, headsets out of the box, gave them to us, put a, gave us a plastic bag, put our name on that plastic bag. At the end of the day, we wiped that down, put it in a bag. So it was a whole lot of protocol. I mean, it was just, you know, they just want to make sure everything's safe because, you know, the reality is COVID-19 is still very much here, and it seems like it's here for a while. Well, it's interesting, too. You talked about how TBT had been an innovator when it comes to basketball things, and now it may be an innovator in how you call some games and events as well, right, with all the protocols that are put in place. I'm yeah. sure people are reaching out to say, hey, how did you do it? How did you do it safely uh, with the different entrances, headsets, all of those sorts of things? So we'll see what happens yeah. uh, with, with other sports, hopefully getting back online here soon. I want Certainly to the prototype. You- Certainly the prototype. The, the TBT is the prototype, and it's the example that, that the NBA is going to follow when they go in the bubble at the end of this month in Orlando. Yeah, and folks are calling games remotely there as well. There's a plan for maybe a crew or two to be in Orlando, but a lot of people doing exactly what you and the rest of the guys did in Indianapolis. Yep. I wanted to ask you, too, about the college basketball experience going forward because you have experience as a player and as a coach as well. There are so many athletes now, uh, coaches who are kind of in limbo, unsure of what is ahead come this fall, winter, spring. I think about the athletes that are returning for a season or the ones who are trying to get recruited. Do you have any sense of of what's going on for those people and and, kind of how they're handling this with all the uncertainty about what lies ahead? Well, I think the unfortunate thing is that the NCAA hasn't come up with a specific plan and a standard protocol for all of their 353 Division I schools, as well as their Division II and Division III schools. They are uh, in charge of literally tens of thousands of kids' lives, right? So it seems like with the money at stake, that they would come up with some kind of rigorous test plan, similar to what we're doing at TBT, but at a whole larger scale. Um, I think that's really the only way that, and and certainly the billions of dollars that they make in profit each year, I think it would be worth the NCAA to come up with a plan that is a blanket plan for everybody and makes at least the players more safe because they talk about player safety, but are they really, is that really just lip service or are they really trying to, to uh, adhere to player safety? So I think, I think if the NCAA made it, made some sort of plan, whatever that plan would be, you know, I th- maybe they need to talk to the TBT guys because <laughs> clearly they, it can be done in, in this environment, but it takes a whole lot of resources. I mean, a ton and a whole lot of effort, and you have to be willing to do it. But the, the last thing you could do, if I had kids going to college right now, I don't think I'd send my son or daughter back to play right now because I wouldn't want them to get – because people talk about, you know, most people don't get it, a lot of people recover, but there are a lot of really bad side effects of getting this. And, you know, so a lot of people recover, but how, how much uh, quality of life are they going to have? And then some people, it doesn't bother them much at all. But do you want to take that chance with your child? I wouldn't want to take that chance with my child. I don't think it's worth it. Just so much that is that is unknown, as you were describing. The other interesting thing about the testing when you're talking about college athletics, it 
it almost in a little bit of a way mirrors uh, what's happened state to state in the U.S., the way things are being handled. A lot of the college stuff, it's coming down to conferences and schools. So you're just seeing right. schools get out ahead of things and saying, we're just not doing this, right? If it's right. Division two or Division three or certain Division one conference, we're just not going to have these sports, Ivy League, things like that. And so before yeah. a, a, a big group plan can come together, right, you're just seeing specific schools saying, we're, we're not doing this. Right, and, and, and that's exactly right. The, the NCAA is kind of a microcosm of the United States with the, the federal government, states, and the local government, right? You have your NCAA, then you have your conferences, and you have your schools. So it's very similar, and I hate to say it, but neither one of the top leadership has any kind of a real plan that is being implemented, and as a result, we're here where we are. Put your coaching hat on if you can here for a minute. Teams are apart, not able to have summer workouts. They're uncertain of what's ahead. If you were in that role again as a as a coach, what are you saying to your guys? How do you kind of communicate with them? And I'm sure you can do Zoom chats like this, but how do you keep everyone positive and motivated for what may or may not come? I mean, right now as an NCAA coach, you almost have to be a, a, psych, a psychologist, right? Because think about Dayton, prime example, or even my alma mater, Liberty. Liberty won 30 games this year. They were 34, by far the best team in the school's history, okay? Coming off of a win, NCAA win last year, okay? Dayton was in number three in the nation as a mid-major. Dayton had Obi Toppin, who was the top player in the country, ended up getting all, sweeping the Player of the Year awards, okay? Anthony Grant, their head coach, swept the Coach of the Year awards, okay? So you have a team that never got to complete their destiny, right? Liberty, Dayton, so many others, East Tennessee State, I could go on. So many good teams, right? So now you have to say, hey, guys, we worked hard. We got all this way. We had a, we're about to go on a national stage and show everybody what we could do, but COVID can't do it. Okay, so now you have to uh, kind of lick that wound, and then for some schools who didn't have good seasons, maybe it's a, a good chance to reset. But for those teams who were, you know, really progressing, that's got to be a real blow. So now you got seniors who literally never got to play their last game, so to speak. Um, so those guys are gone. So you got to hit the reset button. Now you're bringing in new kids. And when you bring in those new kids, you got to start talking about safety again. I mean, it's a nightmare. I, would, I wouldn't want to be a Division One coach other than the money they make now because it's a little <laughs> bit more than what I made when I was coaching back in the 90s. <laughs> well, Tim, Tim uh, mentioned his days at Liberty. If you're looking for a little basketball fix, I found it earlier today. Get over to YouTube. There's a good, like, two-minute mix of Tim out on the fast break, throwing it down, a little tone loke in the background. Oh, can you, uh, see, can you see my picture? See that behind me? Oh, there you go, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that's that's the dunk. That's on YouTube. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Get it. Get over to YouTube and check it out. Uh, Tim, this has been great. As, as we kind of wind these uh, interviews down here on What's Good, we ask the same three questions uh, to everyone uh, about things you've done for yourself, for others, and then, and then kind of what's brought a smile to your face. So I'll start first. What's, what's something you've done for yourself lately during this pandemic COVID time? Something for myself, I would say um, – I don't know. It's not, it's not a lot I've done, really, because uh, it's nothing to do other than order things online. I, I think I've ordered myself a few things on Amazon. So, yeah, I'd say just ordering, ordering little things on Amazon here and there. Yeah. All right. And then what's, what's something you've done for someone else? Something I've done for someone else? Well, I'm doing it right now for my family. I'm actually quarantining. Um, I'm, staying, I'm in my house, but I have access to our guest suite. I have access to my office, and both those have bathrooms, and I cannot go anywhere else except for in transit from one, one is on the first floor, one is on the second. But other than that, 
um, which is why I have the the Zoom background. That's usually where I would be in real life in 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 my house. But I'm not allowed in that area right now. But I'd say you know trying to protect my family from COVID. You know, I was out for five days, so um, I say I'm doing that for them. How challenging has that been to be in the house but not be with them? Uh, you know, I work from home as well, so I'm in my office a lot. But like after the office time is when it gets really challenging, because especially my son, he's six, and he always wants to come and sit with me and hang out and watch sports and talk. And, you know, that's, that's been the hardest part, I think. And then lastly, maybe on a, on a more positive note, maybe it's been FaceTiming with those guys while they're in the same place. But what's something that's made you smile and made you laugh lately? Oh, maybe smile is uh, when I saw that red light come on and say, you are on live TV on ESPN. And by the way, 197 countries and probably every TV executive in America is watching. So that had to make me smile a little bit. After it made me nervous, then it made me smile. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> stuff. Uh, Tim, it was great to watch you on TBT. and looking forward to seeing you doing it again you. Uh, this uh, college basketball season. Thanks for the time. All right. Thanks a lot, Greg. <laughs>